0: So this is a talk about two ways of perceiving our life sometimes called the two truths um, but they're really two facets of this one jewel that we call our life and I want to talk about that as a kind of bridge into Talking about the factor of awakening that we refer to as wisdom, and that, and to say too that um, these two truths in the Tibetan tradition they're called either absolute and relative or ultimate and relative. But for an ultimate, such a it's a little bit of a daunting word, and relative, conventional. But for our purposes tonight, I like actually to use universal and personal because I feel that expresses best the way that we are practicing here and teaching the practice in this retreat. As Lila so beautifully expressed in her metta mindfulness interwoven talk that we're really teaching how to hold both truths, both sides of our life in awareness and at the beginning of practice we focus maybe more on trying to connect with the vastness or the more universal truths because we're so mired in the personal and the conventional you know it's really where we're always stuck but then as some teachers have spoken about we there be, there can be the longing to kind of lift out of the personality and move into transcendent realms of um a kind of freedom from all of that and I remember distinctly in one long retreat this feeling of complete freedom from the personality and then toward the end of the retreat this sense of I guess I didn't have to but I didn't know how not to clamber back down into this suit of armor or something that was called the personality um, but this two truths doctrine is it's it's based in the Abhidharma, the Buddhist psychology, um, the personal or conventional truth is called Samuti Satcha, the ultimate truth is called Paramatta Satcha. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, um, in the Buddha's teaching, the point isn't to find Truth, capital T, because you know he didn't teach Ultimate truth he taught realization and insight, and all of that, as I've said so many times, in the service of alleviating our suffering and and finding peace, finding a deep peace. So um, the truths are all relative, both of them, all of them, because they aren't concepts that are permanent and everlasting. Uh, of an undying nature, but really momentary subjective experiences that are real to us in the sense of, um, being actual in our experience. So the relative, personal, conventional apparent, this is things seeming solid and separate and real, whether it's a tree or the family of deer on the hillside just now, or your roommate. And from the, universal or more ultimate side when we talk about you and me these personal pronouns man woman person individual um, we're talking about things that really only exist through that designation and we're not telling a lie we're using conventional language without it we wouldn't you know be able to communicate with each other Uh, and Lila will talk more about how there really isn't personal individual I but this Um, this stream of experiences that we call um, skandhas or aspects of ourself. So there are two um, pitfalls in our practice. One is to take the personal as so real and solid. And of course, we've all done that hundreds of times. Um, It will always be like this, whatever the this is. And the other is to kind of fall into, it's all empty and really, I just, I'm really free that side of things. And, um, and you know, in all we need to do if we think that, I mean, I, I was feeling actually very free about this Dharma talk, which is usually a danger sign, not nervous, sort of very relaxed. And then I was stapling things together in the manager's office. And, uh, and there was a sense of vastness, I think because the clouds lifted, you know, and there's some clear sky and kind of sauntered into the manager's office mindfully and then I was stapling the things together. And, you know, we have these t-shirts now that have, you know, long sleeves and, of course, I stapled the sleeve right into the talk. Um, (laughs) And that was a good thing to have happen because it just reminded me, um, uh, (laughs) how could I live every day without this self? Um, How can I reconcile the me that, Felt so free with the me that then began to worry about the little holes in the t-shirt. Or, you know, the me that wants to eat the chocolate put out for eight precepts, people. Um, With the me that dispenses wisdom from the teacher seat. Uh, um, These two truths weave around each other, inseparable, equally true. Uh, The word tantra actually means weave, and it refers to that interwovenness of sacred spiritual world and so called, you know, mundane conventional world. It's like the DNA molecule, you know, just forming the whole of our life. And sometimes um, we can feel that oscillation between, we can feel that sense of, you know, our particular personality and really wanting others to take it. Seriously, Um, you know, if a teacher suggests that you let something go before you're ready. Anyway, this is a poem by Tony Hoagland called Personal. Don't take it personal, they said, but I did. I took it all quite personal. The breeze and the river and the color of the fields, the price of grapefruit and stamps the wet hair of women in the rain and I cursed what hurt me and I praised what gave me joy the most simple minded of possible responses the government reminded me of my father with its deafness and its laws and the weather reminded me of my mom with her tropical squalls enjoy it while you can they said of happiness Think first, they said, of talk. Get over it, they said, at the school of broken hearts. But I couldn't, and I didn't, and I don't. I believe in saying it all, while the air fills up with I'm sorries, like wheeling birds and the trees look seasick in the wind. Oh life, can you blame me for making a scene you were that yellow caboose, the moon disappearing over a ridge of cloud. I was the dog chained in some fool's backyard, barking and barking and barking, trying to convince everything else to take it personal, too. Achan Cha says it this way, you should know both the universal and the personal, the realm of forms, and the freedom to not cling to them. The forms of the world have their place, but in another way, there's nothing there. To be free, we need to respect both of these truths. And here's Thich Nhat Hanh's version. He's talking about form and emptiness. Form is the wave, and emptiness is the water. Form being our embodied personal selves, and emptiness that more universal, empty of self element. These truths contain each other because one exists, everything exists. And from the space of awareness that just feels so big, Kit, I'm eating your strong cough drops here, too. Uh, The big mind that makes our personal concerns seem so small from this awareness perspective, the self can sometimes just seem to vanish into experience. Like Mary Oliver's Butterfly, it's a piece of a poem, she says, For years and years I struggled just to love my life, and then the butterfly rose weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, it said, and vanished into the world, just as we vanish into experience, completely absorbed in it, when we are wholeheartedly present. So the personal, the particular expression of life in the form of you, of me, of every single sentient being, is a Dharma door opening into the vastness. And this is a big point in practice, that we can take any tiny detail of our personal experience, and when we connect with it fully, it can... I mean, transform isn't exactly the right word, because it is then that larger truth, that um, that bigger truth. and. And when the Buddha talks about the impersonality of the skandhas, for example, and when he's, you know, he doesn't really spend a lot of time talking about, you know, you really love him, he's thinking about it. I mean, he just, he says, blood, bile, phlegm, pus, bone, sinew, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, when you see it that way, it becomes detached and, des- and dispassionate. And there's, with it being less personal, there's less grasping and, and more freedom. Um, but it turns out you have to wed that detachment and impersonal back in with the particular and the personal for awakening to be manifest. How and where would it manifest? Somebody was talking at um, tea time about um, how hard it is sometimes to keep in mind the larger picture of the vastness and our belonging to something that is bigger than ourself. And yet, you know, all we have to realize is that what was Leela saying? The Day of Miracles or something? That I think that was yesterday. But we were born. I mean, how amazing is that? And anybody who's given birth, I remember while I was giving birth thinking, Oh my God, I cannot believe everybody came into the world like this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, anyway, so we can think of... <laughs> many activities that can um, can take us into, into this sense of being connected to the universal, to something bigger, and yet we pay very much attention to the particular, the way we fold our things, the way we restrain ourselves from speaking to somebody, um, all the things that we are doing here? I love this quote from the Tibetan Buddha Padmasambhava who brought uh, Buddhism into Tibet in the 5th? 7th? 5th or 7th? 7th century. He says while my view is as vast as the sky my actions are as finely ground as barley flour. So that is very helpful. Can we keep that big mind and still pay um, granular attention to the details of our life? And that is Padmasambhava's intention to really respect both of these truths so that we can trust what's happening and be with it instead of trying to control it to make it more, I don't know, something. And so this personal is then that doorway to connection. So I want to tell you some stories tonight about how experience can be transformed when it's seen in this light and, um, and to play with some of the ways that the particular leads us right into the universal. You know, we try to really love the details of our life, of what is uh that metaphrase, may I love myself completely just the way I am. May I love my life completely just the way it is. May you, may all beings. Um, there is a poem I want to read to you right now. <coughs> I think this poem expresses the connection and also the intention to be present with it all because the more we can include in experience um, the more we our own hearts uh, become bigger and wider and able to encompass uh, the 12 weird things that come up in practice and all of it. So, this is a poem from Bridget Lowry, it's called In the World. In the strange half-light of twilight, we sit. In the cloudiness of our questioning, we sit. In our madness and our clarity, we sit. In the midst of Too much to do, well here we could say, too much to think about. We sit. Here with the deer and frogs, here with the bird songs and breezes and emerald green grasses, in the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. In the warm arms of our shared sorrow, we sit. In sweet exhaustion, we sit. In community and in loneliness, we sit. And then she goes on and she says, us in the sound and the sound in us. Us in the world and the world in us. And I would actually even change it and say, <coughs> 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 oh, Sorry, I meant to turn it off. Us as the world, and the world as us. I wanted to tell you a story about His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He told this story, um, it was almost two years ago, at a conference at Harvard Medical School Continuing Education Conference um, about mindfulness and psychotherapy. And he was talking about um, faith, actually, and different approaches. And he was being asked a question about how to be with people who... It's from a woman who works with... Um, mentally ill in homeless shelters, a psychiatrist. And she writes beautifully about her work. And she was saying, you know, she encourages people and tells them, you know, please don't use drugs and alcohol. Just keep coming and take your medications, your life will get better. She said, but often their lives don't get better and it's so hard to bear. And so she was asking His Holiness, um, about how do you be with, what can she bring back to her, uh, to these people to help them when their lives are so difficult and when their lives may not change. And when, she said, um, and whose lives we ourselves may find so hard to uh, be with or bear witness to or even um, endure. And he talked about how Uh, he said, I mentioned my own case, my own experience, and my tutor, Shin Yi tutor, passed away. At that time, usually I had the feeling that I had some solid rock to lean on when his tutor was alive. He felt that. And now, that was no longer there. So, some great disturbances. But then I felt, oh, now no use to keep sort of this grief, grief or desperate sort of feeling. And I remember my late tutor, he wished me a healthy person and something useful, a useful life, a meaningful life. So if I had too much worry, too much sadness, he also feels most sad. If in spite of his death, I carry his instruction, his teaching, sincerely, and without too much disturbance in my mind, that's the best way to serve his wishes. And and then he goes on to talk about how, and I think this is a beautiful interweaving of these two truths. He said, um, if we think of someone, we remember our mother or father, someone who's no longer on this planet, uh, and it might bring more, worry and grief. Um, He said, things that already happened, there's no way to work on that. You know, just worry, worry, worry. It's an additional suffering. But I think our life, always there are different aspects. So he's talking about different ways to look at reality, different angles. And he said, from one angle, it's a disaster. But the same event, if you look from another angle, maybe not that kind of disaster. Even some positive things may be there. And then, um, listen to this part. He says, I often think, make an example our own case. We lost our country. If you look at only that aspect normally, more sadness. But if you look from another angle also, this tragic situation creates a new opportunity if I were still in the castle, the Potala palace, I might not be here participating at Harvard University in these discussions. And personally, also, there would be no opportunity to learn so many, many things that I'm learning from so many different people. Because I myself was considered the most holy person in the Potala palace. So I would have just stayed like that it would have been a complete waste of time. And I would have remained at such a distance from people, from reality. It's like fooling oneself, no use. So I think every life, I think when our life goes through smoothly, then there's time to pretend. But when you're passing through difficult, there's no time to pretend. You must be realistic. You must accept the reality. So, this is encouragement for us. It's a way of saying, in a longer and I think really touching way, uh, what my first teacher, who was famous for his Dharma sound bites, he used to say to us, a good situation for spiritual practice A good situation is a bad situation. And a bad situation is a good situation. So he's saying exactly what His Holiness was saying. You know, you can't pretend when the going gets rough. And so that can be a huge encouragement uh, to us, to you, here. Um... Another story that I want to tell you, I have told this story here before, but I think that, um, I'd like to tell it again, because some of you haven't heard it, and it's a very, to me, it's an inspiring story about uh, the Cambodia monk, Cambodian monk, um, Mahago Sananda. And he's a being who really lived those, the two truths fully. Uh, He passed away two years ago in March uh, during this retreat, and he was known as the Gandhi of Cambodia, really a giant among world Buddhist teachers and a tireless worker for peace. He lost uh, 17 siblings to the Khmer Rouge, but he carried his courageous bodhisattva practice to the whole world, and he, uh, he led innumerable peace actions, including marches through landmine areas and other courageous things. And I was very lucky to travel with him twice on two different pilgrimages, one to Korea and one in China for a month. And if you traveled with him, honestly, I don't know if there's any such thing, but you would think he was a bag monk, um, like a bag lady. I mean, like I hate to say bag lady, but he really looked like a kind of raggedy Um, person. And now it's very stylish to wear a stocking cap pulled down, you know, really far over your head, but it wasn't then. Um, And that's, he wore, in the heat, he'd wear that and just, just these really crumpled piles of ochre robes and, and he never said anything. I mean, you just never would have known he was... Anybody, actually, except maybe my teacher's, you know, kind of poor friend that he was bringing along on the trip as a kindness. The only clue was that whenever the bus would stop and we'd all be so exhausted and we would just like make a beeline for anywhere we could lie down, just get horizontal as soon as he would step off the bus and find a place and just do walking meditation into the night back and forth. back and forth. He practiced metta, was a lot of his. So he was the supreme head monk of Cambodia and he traveled with a group of us to the great, to visit the great Zen temples of Korea. And uh, along with some of the Western Zen teachers who were on this trip, and <coughs> various Korean dignitaries. He was invited at this great big event um, attended by hundreds of monastics, and some of us lay people, at a country temple, Sudoksa, um, in the countryside not two, a couple hours from Seoul. And he was invited to give a Dharma talk. There were really a lot of people there. And there was a stage, and you know, he got up and he stood there in his simple Theravadan robes. And then he spoke in French. He spoke in the language of the country that had colonized his. And here's what he said, and I will translate it for those of you who didn't take high school French. Um, he said, Je suis, tu es, il est, elle est. He's conjugating the verb to be. I am, you are, he is, she is. And then he went on. Nous sommes, vous êtes, elles sont, ils sont. Plural. It was so simple. And it was so true, and it was so clear. And he gave his talk without notes. (laughs) I mean, they all did. Um, But it was Mahagosananda who radiated so much metta and karuna, so much love and compassion, that, I mean, he transmitted such a strong and unmistakable wave of it, you know, Jinji Lop. that wave of blessing. That, even though that's all he said, it was such a powerful transmission that some of us just sat and wept. Our hearts were so touched. Tears of recognition, you know that feeling of something that just is so unmistakably true, full of tenderness and just infinite metta and he hardly said anything standing up there in front of that very illustrious assembly. And yet, and yet, he just broke our hearts wide open, standing there speaking French. And this was 1987, before the genocide in Cambodia had actually ended. And he could hold both truths the truth of this very open field of being where we simply are. And the truth of his work in the refugee camps, which Jack has mentioned, with survivors of the killing fields where he lost 17 members of his immediate family, along with you know, his brothers and sister monks and nuns and... I mean, none of this had to go through our heads at the time. It wasn't necessary. And the majority of the people there couldn't even understand his words, and it did not matter. I mean, his, his presence said it all, just standing there so soft and so humble. And so, you know, it just... It was such dignity and simplicity... And so that metta and kindness and simplicity of being is what we really, I think all of us long for, to be in the presence of that, uh, to be that, if just for a few moments. We really definitely long for this. I remember having a meeting um, with my teacher, uh, Kobincino Roshi, and I, had just sat a sashin with him when I, it was when I first met him, and then I I went and had a meeting with him near where he lived, and I had been sitting there for a few days. And I don't, I had only been practicing maybe three years at that time, I I can't remember, but not very long, and I went in for my meeting with him, and I felt for some reason compelled to sort of make a list of my faults. Uh, Oh, you know, I only sit half an hour a day, I said. He said, if only I could sit half an hour a day. And it just went like that. Each thing I said was met with such um, acceptance and compassion and humor. And I remember leaving that meeting and feeling complete. Like, oh, my life is complete. I could die now. I didn't want to die. That wasn't the point. But, you know, just that feeling of being held in that kind of simple, humble, kind, kind presence. Um, Suzuki Roshi talks about things falling out of balance against a backdrop of perfect balance Oh, Jack Cornfield says. <laughs> <coughs> 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 um, he says the end of becoming, becoming somebody, you know, we're always becoming somebody. The one who had a great sit, the one who can't take any more of this and ten days to go, the one who is so grateful, the one, you know, we're always becoming someone or something. The end of becoming is not the stopping of any process, but the end of the person who becomes, that identification, with the end of taking experience to be myself and becoming it, that is becoming identified with it over and over. So that's a different view of, we're not talking about the personal as being that kind of identifying with it as I, me, my over and over, but to use our, the content of our personal experience to connect uh, with. Well, Eitken Roshi puts it this way. When someone speaks of no self, I vow with all beings, to be sure there is no contradiction. The speaker is there, after all. So, yeah, it takes a moment, I know, for that one to to land. When someone speaks of no self, I vow with all beings, to be sure there is no contradiction. The speaker is there, after all. So so we have to be careful, you know, because as soon as we talk about it in a certain way, I could tell you how selfless I feel right now. How would that sound? Um, Anyway, right? It wouldn't sound right at all. And you probably wouldn't even believe me if I said that. in another talk I talked about the Zen Master Rinzai saying there is nothing that is not sacred, there's nothing that is not profound when we can be with it in that simple, clear, humble, uh, receptive way. And and this is also part of what Ticha is teaching in the Qigong, there's no movement that is inconsequential. And Uh, one yogi realized, one student realized this through her Qigong practice, that no part of any movement is unimportant, actually. Not just no movement, but no part of any movement. That the whole arc of any gesture is important. And she found herself reaching for a door with the same kind of flowing attentiveness as the Qigong, noticing the opening, expanding movements with the gathering, embracing gestures and uh, just seeing how they alternate that rhythm of expansion and contraction, ebb and flow, uh, breathing in and breathing out and that it's possible to move through the day like this, uh, dissolving or melting that practice that we do with teacher sometimes um, into the flow of just open, calm experience forming and dissolving, appearing and disappearing, being born and passing away. I'm just pausing for a moment to choose the stories that I, I have most important that I want to read to you. Okay. This is another one about His Holiness, but it's about my relationship to something that he said that was really important to me in my practice, so I want to share it with you. And this happened um, 25 years ago, before he was famous. And His smiling face, maybe it was more than 25 years actually, but his smiling face was on the newsprint cover of a newspaper called The Snow Lion, comes out of Ithaca, New York, and it struck me so powerfully that I cut it out and I put it up in my kitchen on the cupboard where it stayed until it got all yellowed and tattered, and over the years and the the piece of paper with his, his smiling face and he had his hands in prayer position, Namaste, show like that. And, but I never forgot what it said. What he said, there was a quote under his picture and it said, uh, maybe I am the last Dalai Lama. It's all right. There's nothing wrong. I couldn't imagine that it would feel OK to lose one's people, to lose one's country, to lose a whole lineage and tradition, that you're the, you know um, symbol representative of. I just couldn't imagine how he could say that, knowing how much people count on him and uh, to give them guidance and courage and inspiration. But those words had some kind of ring of truth and they have inspired my practice through very dark times in my own life. And I remember more than once sitting in the midst of great suffering and just tears, not the kind of tears of Mahagvasananda, but just tears of, of sorrow um, pouring down my face and sitting in the zendo and just, you know, sitting in the hall like you are and just deeply knowing that it's also all right. That along with the personal heartbreak, which is true, undeniable, there's another dimension of our awareness, being, consciousness, life, where that too can be all right. So it wasn't the all right of complacency or dismissal or denial. It was the big all right of um, particular things, particular relationships, particular situations, falling out of balance, maybe even dying against a background of perfect balance. And this takes a lot of courage. It goes against the grain of what we are conditioned to feel and think against the stream. And um, I have a poem for you that I want to read to you. This is a poem by Adrian Rich and it's about Marie Curie. Marie Curie. And it's called Power. Living in the earth deposits of our history, today a backhoe divulged out of a crumbling flank of earth, one bottle, amber, perfect. A hundred year old, cure for fever or melancholy or tonic, a tonic, a tonic for living on this earth in the winters of this climate, People didn't know about the dangers of radiation. You know, in my mom's day, like she was given uh, radiation treatments for acne for her skin. Um, I am old enough, maybe some of you can also remember when we could, um, at the shoe store, we could stick our feet in an x-ray machine and wiggle our toes and see all the bones, and it was so much fun. I mean, nobody knew then, what we know now. And they made, you know, tonics and, I mean, things for people to ingest and feel better, this miracle thing. Today I was reading about Marie Curie. She must have known she suffered from radiation sickness. Her body bombarded for years by the element she had purified. It seems she denied to the end the source of the cataracts on her eyes, the cracked and separating skin of her finger ends till she could no longer hold a test tube or a pencil. She died a famous woman. I think she got two Nobel prizes. She died a famous woman denying her wounds Denying, her wounds came from the same source as her power. So this is uh, this is really the ultimate teaching of the two truths: that right in the place that we least expect to find it, you know, our power can come right out of that brokenheartedness. Uh, as Yeats, he wasn't referring exactly to this, but it does refer to this, that that line from Crazy Jane, love has pitched its mansion in the place of excrement. You know, right in our avalanche of you-know-what. And the last image, a little more uplifting, that I will leave you with is... um, When I was traveling also with Mahagosananda in China, we visited one temple where, uh, it was the temple where Dogen Zenji, the Japanese uh, monk becomes Zen master, went to China to study in, and um, and we've entered one hall. The temples are laid out uh, as a kind of mandala or map of consciousness and the path of practice we entered one hall called the Hall of the 18 Arhats, beings who embody spiritual strengths. And there were these huge, big, golden statues and sitting in a ring around the edge of the room. And each one um, had a particular, unique, personal, fantastic human face. And each one unique. And you walk into this hall and you're just... um, surrounded by these towering golden arhats. Just picture them, you know, surrounding us, each one illustrating in a certain posture and illustrating the quality of their heart. And um, my favorite was the arhat with the long eyebrows. They were so long, he had to hold them out with his fingers and they were made of hair, real long human hair. And they went all the way down to the ground because there's a legend that if you don't tell a lie, your eyebrows grow. Sort of the reverse Pinocchio, um, <laughs> that if you don't tell a lie, your eyebrows grow. And so that says something right about all of us. And um, and then there was the arhat that he had plunged his hands into his chest and pulled his chest open, exposing these uh, layers of red flesh under the the golden skin. It was raw, painted blood red, and his face was completely, completely serene as he dug his hands into his chest, pulled it apart, opened his heart. And it's like all of you just sitting in this hall with the most beautiful. I mean, you can't see yourself. That's why we need each other to be able to see that beauty and, and, Uh, courage and um, just immense blossoming that is happening for each one of you in your own way as you sit here with the courage to let your hearts open and and sometimes break and and in the opening in his chest he exposed his heart and where his heart was there was a small golden buddha it was really a very very striking and very beautiful image. So, to be whole and complete on our spiritual path, we honor both of these truths. Um, Our personal heartbreak and the opening into connection with every being who has ever been heartbroken in this world. And um, there's a freedom that comes when we stop denying our wounds and instead allow them to transform into this wisdom and compassion. So that even in the face of the oceans of suffering, there can be joy in our practice. This this simple joy that we can actually sit and walk and listen to a Dharma talk and staple our sleeve to the page and just, you know, whatever we're doing coughing, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. What matters is our ability to uh, open our hearts, face our broken hearts. Uh, it's, and then, this is how Leonard Cohen, a Zen student, uh, Leonard Cohen, put it. He said, even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips, but hallelujah. I, you know, I usually like to sing it, I don't know, tonight. (laughs) I don't know. Uh. (laughs) They've suggested that I skip that part. Thank you so much for your attention. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you everyone, enjoy your walking.